Friends, would you please stand with me as we read the Lord's Word today? You're reading from Ephesians chapter 6. We will read verses 10 through 17. Again, listen now to the Lord's Word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Again, O oh Lord, we come asking that your mercy be upon us now as we open your word. I pray that your blessing be upon your servant, that I will be faithful and plain as I ought to be. I pray that you would give understanding to your people. We pray that you would keep the seed of the gospel from being stolen away. We ask, Father, that you would go to battle for us, <coughs> that you will uh, set your angels as a hedge of protection around this sanctuary today. We pray that you would give us ears to hear. Father, for all the things that distract us and all the tiredness and the hunger, all these sorts of things, Father, would you please hold them at bay that we might now feast upon your word. And we pray again, as has been prayed, that you would cause your kingdom to advance in the kingdom of Satan, great injury. Again, we praise you for your goodness to us. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we've been addressing the fact that we, the church, <coughs> excuse me, are in a spiritual battle. Again, Paul has said that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes, governments and co-workers and family members Enemies, they may discourage, belittle, and even persecute us, but they are not who our struggle is primarily against. Our battle is primarily a spiritual battle that we are engaged in in the church. Our struggle is with the devil and his demons, who we are told in Revelation 12, 7 through 9, and there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for him in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. The Apostle John said this of Christians. He says, we know that we are of God, but the non-Christian, he says, that they... Uh, that the whole world rather lies 
in the power of the evil one. And Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. I have wrestled with this very thing wondering how can Stephen, how can the Lord Jesus, Lord, how do they say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It's because of this very thing that they're blinded by the evil one. And that's why they look at these people, their enemies, who would kill them ultimately. They look at them with compassion. The world is caught in the snare of the devil, said Paul in 2 Timothy 2 having been held captive by him to do his will. And Peter would say that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Friends, why does the world hate the church? Why do they spurn the gospel and mock the things of God? Because they are caught in their sin. They think the thoughts of their master. They believe his lies. They believe his lies. We came from lower life forms. That there is no God, or there are as many gods as you want, or many paths to the one God as you would like. There is absolutely no purpose for us, or you make your own destiny. These kinds of um, insane statements and philosophies. Uh, last night they were watching a Ray Comfort video in our house on YouTube, and it was really sad. Uh, not Ray Comfort, he does a, just a, a really faithful job, but some of the people he was interviewing and asking, he goes, aren't you afraid? He just has painted a box around them using the law of God. Aren't you afraid of hell? Nah, I'm good, I'm fine, Pfft, nothing to worry about. And they chuckle and laugh. I guess I'm going to hell. <laughs> and I go, oh, what a sad thing. But that's how deceived people are. That's what we're up against. The world is deceived. The Bible, the truth of Scripture, the truth of Christ. Why, well, these are for infants. These are stories for children, for weaklings. We're not weak. We're strong. We have our acts together. What a lie. What a lie. They're caught in their sin. And as we've been saying, the devil, what is he? He's a liar. He's a murderer. He is the great deceiver. And look at our world. Do you need any evidence? Do I need to support this? Look at Lander. Look at Riverton. Look at the church. How is Satan doing? How is he doing? It would seem as if he has the upper hand. But he doesn't. But it would seem he does. We've got earth worshipers, Hindus, people trusting in government, Looking to money, looking to self, trapped in spiritism and addictions, hopeless, helpless, families being destroyed, enslaved to various lusts and idolatries. How is Satan doing? How is the battle going? And we look at the world around us, and what are they? They are like sheep without a shepherd. Satan's goal, as we have pointed out, is to keep people from knowing Jesus Christ. That's his goal or to make you a terribly ineffective witness, to waylay you, to distract you, to discourage you, to cause you to become lukewarm, lethargic, indifferent, and even sleepy. And I would argue that that's much of the church today. Indifferent and sleepy. Indifferent to the suffering of your neighbors, the fact that they are blind and on, their path, on the path to hell. 
His goal is to make the church appear as attractive as a chemical waste dump, to knock us down and to take us out. Persecution has come in the past. Persecution is currently uh, affecting many churches in, across the, the oceans, and I am quite convinced that persecution is coming to us in this country shortly. Indeed, Paul says, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are at battle. We are in a war. How will you stand firm? Because ultimately, that's what Paul is getting at here. Notice how many times he says, stand firm. That is, don't be moved. Don't be pushed back. Don't be pushed aside. But stand firm. How is it that you will hold firm your stance as a Christian? How is it that we won't lose ground? But even now, in some of the darkest hours we have seen in our nation's history, how will we advance, or how does the kingdom of God Advance. It will not be in our strength, not in the ability to muster forces or in cleverness of speech or in some contemporary philosophy uh, that approaches the world to try to become like the world. We will only stand firm if we are clothed in the armor of God, that armor which God himself provides. We will only stand firm in the strength of his might. And that's what we're looking at as we look at this. What is this armor of God? How is it that we are to weather the attacks of the evil one? How is it that we stand firm? Now listen to me. We start well. People start the race, right? Oh, this is great. I love Christianity. I love the fellowship meals. I love getting together and playing games and laughing and having a great time. But then persecution comes. Uh, I'm not such a fan of those fellowship meals anymore. I think I want to find some other place to go. You see, and this is what Satan does. He drives you away. That's his goal. That's his goal. We effectively battle our spiritual enemy when we put on the full armor of God, and we're looking at this armor. Last week, we looked at girding our loins with truth. Here Paul begins with the defensive armor. Just as a, as a brief reminder, truth is like the belt that holds up your pants. The idea of having girded your loins means that you have prepared for action. Before going into battle, men would tie up long, loose clothing so that they would not be tripped up, so that they might be effective and not be hindered. Here then, truth for the Christian is like a belt for a soldier. Truth is meant to bring freedom and ease and clarity and confidence to remove uncertainty and doubt so that you may fight and not be tripped up. We watched this week again, uh, What is a Woman by Matt Walsh, that documentary. Great documentary. Um, really not funny. It's not, I don't think it's intended to be funny, but there are moments that are comical, but you can't believe why it's comical. It's comical because it's insane. And I really encourage you to watch it because it shows you the mindset that we're dealing with in our culture. And so you speak of truth. The baby is born. He comes out and the doctor says, I don't know what it is. We'll have to wait and to see what he or she or it, they decide. Um, right? The beauty of truth is this. God made them male and female. How many sexes are there? Two. And it's been that way since the beginning. 
You see, it, it provides a freedom to you. Well, they say that they're a dog. No, you're a person, you're a female person, or you're a male person, but you are not, nor will you ever be, a dog. Now, you think that that's crazy. You watch that documentary, and you'll see this is what's going on in our culture. And the Christian, with clarity, can say, no, that's not right, that's wrong. But you see, it's not just with the sexes. It's with everything that the Christian has been given a certainty because we have the word of God. So when we speak of man being sinful, we can say, yes, men are sinful. You realize Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to men because he knew what was in the hearts of all men. We should not be surprised. I'm not surprised that the world is as dark as it is. I'm actually a little surprised it's not worse than it is. And I can only say it's only because of the grace of God that we're not cannibalizing one another right now. Because that's what's in the heart of men. That's what we do. That's what the scriptures say. So I have this certainty. I have a freedom. I can step into a, 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 a conference. I can step into a room. And people can throw out their highfalutin ideas. And I'm like the child who says, that dude is naked. Quoting the emperor's new, new uh, suit. You can speak with a certainty because that's the beauty of truth. So he says, gird your loins with truth. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ came in the flesh to destroy the works of the devil. He is truth. He died for the sinner, died in the sinner's place, as the scripture says. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day, and he's coming again to judge the world. This is truth. But it's not just truth, said Paul. It is truth, uh, objective truth, but it is also that subjective element we benefit from the truth only when we appropriate and internalize that truth as well. So again, remember, it's, it's not just that Jesus Christ is a king, but it's Jesus Christ is my king. He's my savior. He's my Lord. This is what I am called to do. He has come to rescue, not merely sinners, but he has come to rescue this sinner. He came to rescue you from the wages of sin. That's the kind of truth Paul is calling us to. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. But now the apostle continues with this imagery of the Roman armor, the defensive armor, remembering that it is the full armor of God that we should put on. It's knowing truth, but it's also having put on the breastplate of righteousness. How will you stand firm, or will you stand firm, then you must also put on the breastplate of righteousness besides girding your loins with truth. What is this breastplate of righteousness? Charles Hodge said this, the breastplate was the armor covering the body from the neck to the thighs consisting of two parts, one covering the front and the other the back. A warrior without his breastplate was naked, exposed to every thrust of his enemy and even to every casual dart. In such a state, flight or death is inevitable. So imagine the front and the back being covered from neck down to thigh. You're covered. You're all your vital organs are covered. What is meant by this breastplate of righteousness? The word righteousness in the broad sense means the state of him who is such as he ought to be, said Thayer, 
It is the doctrine concerning the way in which man may attain to a state approved of God or integrity, virtue, purity of life, uprightness, correctness in thinking, feeling, and acting. So many commentators say that the breastplate of righteousness is a devout and holy life or moral rectitude. It is the character of the individual that is the breastplate of righteousness. So, in other words, if I live a clean and upright life, Satan will not be able to get, me, get to me to harm me. In other words, what is there by which I may be accused? Now, I'm not disputing with these commentators who say this, but I want to caution us on this point. I really want to caution us on this point. If the breastplate of righteousness is a devout and holy life, and I'm not saying it isn't, um, I will say it can't merely be a devout and holy life. The breastplate of righteousness must be something fundamentally more than our character or deeds. It must be, and I will tell you why. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 59, I want to read 9 through 20. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday, as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street, and the uprightness can, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, and there was no justice, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on a garment of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay, wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Here, Isaiah is speaking to the people. The people of God are in sin. They are in sorrow. They are in misery as a people. Again, Isaiah says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. But then, then he says, now the Lord saw it and it was displeasing in his sight and there was no justice, and he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. A redeemer would come 
to Zion and to those who would turn from transgression in Jacob. My friends, it is from this passage that the apostle quotes here in Ephesians 6.14. What is the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness? I'm going to remind you what John Stott wrote. The point is, is that this equipment is forged and furnished by God. In the Old Testament, it is God himself, the Lord of hosts, who was depicted as a warrior fighting to vindicate his people. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. Still today, the armor and weapons are his, but now he shares them with us. We have to put on the armor, take up the weapons, and go to war with the powers of evil. Again, the point I wish to make is this, that the breastplate of righteousness cannot and must not be understood as merely a devout and holy life. It must not be understood as merely these things unless you understand those terms, devout and holy, to be an overflow of life in Jesus Christ, which surely the commentators must have meant. I'm going to read to you, uh, turn with me please to Philippians chapter 3, because I want to talk to you about a devout and holy life. Verse 2 through 11, we're looking at the Apostle Paul as he writes here. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Notice, he says, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being comforted or conformed rather to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Friends, understand who the Apostle Paul was. Before being stopped by the Lord on the road to Damascus, this rabbi, Saul, was one sincere, intense, devout, and holy man. That's what he was. That was Paul or Saul. He tithed. He went to synagogue, he had a prayer life, he fasted, he washed, he instructed people in the law of God. He fought what he thought he was fighting was heresy. This man, by all accounts, would have been a holy and devout man. What's Paul talking about in Ephesians 6, the breastplate of righteousness? Is he saying, well, I was saved by Jesus and now, now I can fight this spiritual battle against the devil in my own flesh. If I just clean up my life, get my act together, then I can withstand the devil. I don't think that for a second that that's what he's saying. Not for a second. That which was to prepare him to meet the Messiah, the law that the apostle, that Saul at this point in his life was bound to, understand that the law in Satan's hands kept 
the apostle kept Saul in bondage. It was bondage to him. It wasn't freedom. It was bondage. Look at me. Look how good I do. You Christians, you're undermining it. You're undermining it. Sometimes, friends, good people, devout lifestyles, are the most difficult to see through. They are blinding because they believe that doing good makes us good. That's why I always rail against homeschools. I love homeschooling. I think it's the way to go. But if I have one thing that really scares me about it, it's that your children are smart, they're beautiful, they do all these right things, and this is where Satan gets us in our pride, and he gets us, he hooks us into thinking that we're good because we're not doing it like the rest of the world. If you homeschool your children and you leave your little children in a room by themselves, they will end up punching themselves in the nose because sin dwells in the heart. And I'm not against homeschooling. Hear me. I know I've told you this before. J. Vernon McGee was talking, it was when the Christian school movement was big back in the 60s or 70s. And he said, you people who think your children are going to be kept safe going to Christian school, let me remind you that the devil was present at the Last Supper. It's a profound point. Paul is not saying put on the breastplate of moral rectitude. He's not saying that first. He is saying put on Jesus Christ. That's where it's got to begin. The spiritual battle, the truth, and righteousness. We put on righteousness. Philippians 3.9, again, Paul says, And may be found in him that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The breastplate of righteousness, I contend, is that righteousness, and I think I must, it must surely mean this, it is that righteousness which is first given, imputed to us by God's grace through the means of faith in Jesus Christ. It's got to mean this. The righteousness that we put on as a breastplate that enables us to stand firm is the righteousness that comes from God. He is our armor. Christ is our righteousness. Why did death come into the world? It was because of sin. Satan is a murderer. He tempted our first parents to disobey God. We are told by Paul there are none who are righteous. and Who will deliver us from the wrath to come? Who has come to destroy the works of the devil? Who is good enough? Who is righteous? Who is holy? Who alone can silence Satan's attacks? My friends, it is Jesus Christ alone who silences the attacks of Satan. We're going to land this plane in just a few moments, but turn with me to Romans, Acts, um, Romans chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace 
through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness that we put on is the righteousness that Christ himself has secured for us. And new life internally leads to a true and devout and holy life. Do you see that, friends? So when we present the gospel, we're not saying to people, stop doing this and stop doing that and start being more like me and, 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 and cut your hair and, and drive a better car and, and, and start hanging out with better people. We don't, that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're a sinner, you're going to die in your sins, and unless you repent and turn to Jesus Christ, you will perish. That's the gospel. And Jesus Christ came into the world to save the sinner. Turn to Jesus Christ, flee to Jesus Christ while you can before you die. That's the gospel. God is merciful to sinners. He welcomes the sinner. My friends, if the tree is good, so will be the fruit. If the tree is dead, it will not bear fruit. If we abide in Christ, that he and us, we will bear much fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. The righteous breastplate that we put on, the breastplate of righteousness that we put on, is faith in Jesus Christ. And out of that faith in Jesus Christ flow all the other things. You know, I never cared about living a holy life until Christ redeemed me and said, I don't want you living this way anymore. I went, oh. I'll change. I'll stop that. That's not the way I repay a loving Savior and Lord. By hardening my heart and holding a stiff neck and saying, I will do as I please. No, 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 no. No. That's not the way you treat the Savior. And that's what happens when a man is born again. His life changes from the inside out. And so a holy and devout life flows out of the righteousness that has been credited to him in Christ. So I want to land this plane. When the apostle states, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, he is first pointing us to Christ Jesus. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is God, who is righteous, who remains sinless in thought, word, and deed. And secondly, then, is the fruit of changed hearts. In regarding to Christ's righteousness, Satan attacks us. How? He it causes us to compromise the gospel. To have us start to believe things like righteousness can actually be obtained apart from Jesus Christ. Um, the social gospel, just do these things and you will be good. You'll be better than other people. As long as I do nice things for others, I will be okay. Or... Or it'll be a message like this. Trust Jesus and your baptism. Trust Jesus and your efforts. Trust Jesus and the fact that you walked the aisle or said a prayer. Or that you're very sincere. You're not like other fakes and phonies. Why, you were earnest in the things that you believe. Or hold fast to your zealous efforts. You'll hear this sometimes among Christians. It shouldn't be this way. Let me tell you all about what I've done for you and for others. I don't want to hear that. Tell me what Christ has done for you. Stop boasting in your flesh. That's just like the Apostle Paul or Saul before he was converted. 
I was circumcised the eighth day, man. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee. I obey the law. How dare you look down your nose at me? You don't know who you're talking to. Hogwash. You know, a Christian boasts in Jesus Christ. That's his great boast. Man, I'm telling you, I can't get through a single day where I look at my life and go, boy, I can't wait to tell somebody what I did. That's not me at all. I say, what a wretch. I have to go to bed at night thinking to myself, oh, Jesus, thank you for your love for me. I'd have no hope were it not for you. But when a person is so quick to talk about what they do, I'm concerned for their souls because it sounds like they're, off, they're boasting in their flesh rather than boasting in Jesus Christ. That's a concern. Mark your words. Satan will also remind you of your sinful past, the many struggles with guilt over your past sins. He will whisper in your ear, and listen to me, he will whisper in your ear, you can't be forgiven. You see, we're real good at determining which sins are acceptable before the Almighty and which ones aren't. Adultery, fornication, pornography, pedophilia, homosexuality, murder, abortions, addictions, and Satan whispers, you don't have a prayer, you don't have a hope. And you think to yourself, he might deal with lesser sins, but he won't deal with mine because they're too heinous. Do you realize what a wicked deception that is? Do you realize that Jesus Christ deals with our sins in full? And our righteousness comes from him and not our performance. I love the story of King David and his sin. Because you see such a, a man after God's own heart who, who sins so heinously and a man who so freely falls upon the grace of the Lord and he's forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that should be you. That should be me. Regardless of what you have done in the past, you understand that the righteousness we clothe ourselves in is the righteousness that Jesus Christ provides, not in the righteousness we perform. That's, that's a serious thing. And I would urge you, do not let Satan hold that over your head. Or he reminds you of your past and the fact that, well, you're better than most people. <laughs> You've never done anything like that. I'm one of those church kids. I was one of those kids who grew up in the church. My wife was one of those kids who grew up in the church who nearly broke the relationship off with me. No, I almost broke it off with her when she told me that she once got caught chewing gum in a bathroom. <laughs> How easy it is to fall into pride and to say, I'm not like other people. And Satan would deceive you and have you say, yep, you're not. You don't need Jesus because you're good enough just as you are. And regarding, friends, practical righteousness, Satan will have us get compromised. He has Christians get caught in sin, plays these mind games has us start thinking that there's no, there, there's no problem with little sins as long as they're just little sins and you don't let them become major sins. There's no problem. Kind of like that fish hook with a minnow on it and you just wiggle it through the water and that big fish sees that little minnow and he's hooked and he's dragged away. Satan works this way. And so you're compromised.
you know, somebody make charges and accusations. Somebody has. And you know what my answer is? I'm clothed in Jesus Christ. My fourth grade cheating is paid for. The way I mistreated people has been paid for. And I look at my life now and I say, I'm above reproach. You can't lay your fingers into me. That's because of the reality of righteousness of Jesus Christ applied to my heart and overflowing in my life and I'm not concerned about what might be found because there's nothing to find. I'm a boring guy. I don't steal money and I don't mess with other men's wives. My conscience is clear. I'm not a perfect man, but my conscience is clear before the Lord. That's the breastplate of righteousness. That's where I can stand in the spiritual attacks. Because there's nothing there. I don't have to flee. My back is covered. My front is covered. And you continue to go into battle. Regardless of what is said. The other way he gets us in practical righteousness is he has us become calloused. Oh, I'm saved by grace so I can go and sin however I please. Satan will exploit that and he will attack. You see, friends, when Satan attacks and he accuses you, reminding uh, you of what you have done, you remind him that your sins are paid in full. They were paid on Calvary's cross. They were dealt with in total. And that such uh, the love of God demands all that we have to give because of what Christ has done for us. And so we fight this battle and we stand firm, being confident in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your many kindnesses to us and pray that you will help us in the trials that we face. Father, we recognize that we truly are engaged in a spiritual battle. And so I pray, Father, that you would be merciful to us, that you will help us in a very tangible way, Father, to be reminded of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. For I know, Lord, that I'm not alone in the attacks that occur, how Satan whispers to us that he gets us over a barrel and he, he gets us um, wanting to trust in ourselves and clean up our acts. But, Father, truthfully, we have nothing in which to heal ourselves. But in Christ, we have everything. We pray, Lord, that we would stand in him and be unshaken. Thank you again for your love for us. I do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.